Tonight we're starting Acts chapter 2. And uh, we're not going to be quite as ambitious as we were last week. Uh, we're only probably only going to get through four verses tonight. Uh, but they're very powerful. There's a lot of there's a lot of a lot of stuff in the first four verses of Acts chapter two that we're going to get to tonight. Uh, because last week, as we we finished up chapter one, you know we we've we, we've had Jesus give the great commission again in Acts one eight, where he said, "You'll receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be be my witnesses in Ju Jerusalem and Judea." and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And then Jesus ascended into heaven and we learned a lot about what the symbolism behind that is and everything and what that means. And then they have appointed another man, Matthias, to be the, the 12th uh, apostle or disciple uh, at that point in time. And, and now we're at the end of all that and we're starting in chapter 2. And they've been waiting now in Jerusalem uh, from the day, day of Jesus' ascension, just trying to be obedient and waiting in Jerusalem. So let's read what happens. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. As we read this, this is a this is a uh, a huge moment, in, not only in the history of the church, but in human history. As we look at that, as we see the coming of the Holy Spirit to to fill believers, and the 120 that, that had gathered, they had continued in prayer and praise uh, for about 10 days after the ascension of Jesus, and it says until the day of Pentecost, when it literally came. Now, Pentecost it literally means 50th. Uh, it comes from a Greek word, uh, uh, Pentecoste. You know, that's pretty easy how we can see where we get it from that. But it literally means 50th. And the reason it's, it means that is because it was not originally called the Day of Pentecost or the Feast of Pentecost. But it, it, we, we got the name because of that. Because it was a feast that, they, that was celebrated by, by uh, the Jews 50 days uh, from the first Sabbath following Passover. So that's where they get the number. Let me read it to you. Leviticus 23, verses 15 and 16. From the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the, the, the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks. Okay, so seven full weeks is how many days? Almost. 49. Seven times seven, 49. is 49 days. And then the next day is the 50th day, and that's the day of, of Pentecost. So they count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then celebrate a, an offering of new grain to the Lord. So the Feast of Pentecost uh, was this, this 50th day. Okay, let, we're, well, I'm, gonna, I'm pr probably getting ahead of myself a little bit, but on the day after Pentecost, uh, Passover, uh, somebody tell me, remind me, uh, what was Passover remembering? The, the last plague in Egypt, it was the death of the firstborn when the, the, the angel of death went through the land. And, and, uh, and what did the Israelites do? They, they put, there you go, okay, we're, on, we're getting there. <laughs> Some of you at first, you're like, uh, and then it's like, oh yeah, here it comes. They put the blood of a, of a lamb uh, above the door and along the, the doorpost. They covered uh, the door. And then when the angel of death went through the land of Egypt, if it saw the blood of the lamb, it would pass over them. That's where they get the name Passover. Really, really tricky there, right? And so um, what, what else? There's another major event that, that happened that coincided with the Passover feast. What is that? It's the death of Jesus on the cross. <laughs> Some of you are like, man, I knew I should have guessed Jesus something. Um, yeah, the death of Jesus, because that happened during the Passover, which, which when you think about it, the, the death of Jesus on the cross is really the fulfillment of the Passover, because it was the blood of the lamb that delivered the people from the, the children of Israel, and now and it's going to be the blood of another lamb uh, on the cross. And so the death of Jesus is, is how, you remember what we said last week, how uh, God does not do anything on a whim. 
Everything he does is on purpose. It's for a reason. There's a reason why Passover happened. And it wasn't just for the children of Israel, but it was also a prophetic event that was pointing forward to the death of Jesus on the cross. And it's not an accident that Jesus died on the cross during Passover, during the Passover season. And so anyway, when they would, when they would finish the Passover meal, the Passover feast, the next day they would bring uh, a, 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 they would bring a, a sheaf of uh, uh, first fruits, whatever it was, you know, a grain offering or whatever, and they would they would bring it in and they would offer that, and uh, and that was the first fruit it was offered that was offered to the Lord. Jesus again, the Bible tells us he was the first fruit of many that would be that would be saved, and so again the symbolism that was there. So then, fifty days later. After that, that, that sheaf offering was made, on the 50th day, after the waving the sheaf of first fruits, uh, the day after P- Passover, they would come in and they would then offer two sheaves of wheat from the, from the new harvest. And it was a day uh, for, uh, for when the, it was really a harvest festival in a way. It was a day when the farmers brought the first sheaf of wheat from the crop and they offered it to God and it was partly as a sign of gratitude, but it was also uh, partly as a prayer that, all, that the rest of the crop would be safely gathered in. So, so it's, it's significant because, as I said, God doesn't do things on a whim. Everything he does is with a purpose. So with that in mind, why do you think he would choose the day of Pentecost to pour out the gift of the Holy Spirit on the church? Any ideas? Some of you are concentrating on the sound that you just heard back there. <laughs> Josh needs to eat before he comes. His stomach is growling. <laughs> anyway, some of you didn't even hear the you didn't hear the question, <laughs> but I'll just answer it rather than go back through that all again. All right, Jesus. Remember, Jesus had told them. That uh, in Acts 1.8, he told them that they would receive the power, receive power after the Holy Spirit came upon them and they would be witnesses for him. And, and so, in other words, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit would be an empowerment for powerful and effective witnessing uh, to the world about Jesus. And so the, the Feast of Pentecost marked the beginning of the harvest for the Jewish farmers and the day of Pentecost marked the beginning of the harvest for the church. It was the very first day that the harvest was going to come, that the, that the harvest, uh, that we saw the first fruit of Christ on the cross. And now the day of Pentecost, the, the great harvest was going to begin to, to come in. In fact, uh, the harvest began on that very day of the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 people responded to Peter's sermon and got saved, baptized, and filled with the Spirit on the very first day, of, on the day of Pentecost itself. So you can see, you know, God doesn't do these things on a whim. So, so pass, uh, uh, Pentecost, being the 50th day after the Passover, also reminds us that the, that the Lamb was slain on the, on the cross during the Passover season, pointing ahead to uh, and, and offering the first fruit of, of resurrection, pointing ahead to a greater harvest that was going to come that all started on the day of Pentecost. Now, I will say this. The church didn't start on the day of Pentecost because to be part of the church, it, you require, it's required to believe in a risen Christ. And so the church was in existence. They were Christians after the, the resurrection, when they put their faith in Christ, they were saved. They were Christians. But on the day of Pentecost, a new age was launched. And that was the age of the church, the, the, the age of harvest, of bringing in those that are lost and, and making Christ known. But, but there's even more to Pentecost than that. Because for the Jew, neither Passover nor Pentecost were simply agricultural festivals. That wasn't all that there was to it. These festivals they, they awaken echoes of, of the great story which, 
dominated the long memories of the Jewish people. The story of the, of the exodus from Egypt when God fulfilled his promises to Abraham by rescuing his people. And we know that Passover, as we already said, was a time when lambs were sacrificed and, and the Israelites were saved from the death angel who, who slew the firstborn of the Egyptians. And that very night, that very night, the Israelites passed through, uh, through the, the Red Sea. They, 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 they escaped, they left Egypt and they escaped and passed through the Red Sea and, and made their way into the Sinai Desert. And think about this, okay? So this is the Passover. Fifty days after the actual Passover event in, is, in Egypt, 50 days later, they arrived at Mount Sinai. And that was where Moses received the law. And, and Pentecost, the 50th day, isn't just about first fruits, the, the sheaf which, which says the harvest has begun. It's about God, in, in 50 days later, God gave his people a, a, a way of life by which that they, they must now carry out his purposes. And we're going to see a, a little bit later, we're going to see a few verses down the road that there is a very strong parallel between the day that the law was given and the day that the Spirit was given. We're going to see how a Scripture later says, Paul said, that the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. And we're going to see how, how those two are so connected. But, we're not, but we'll get to that. So it says that when the day of Pentecost came, they were together in one place. The 120 were still in one accord, and they were all together in one place. None were missing. They were all there. We're not told where the place was, but most take it to be the upper room, which had become their headquarters. Others, in view of Peter's statement uh, a little bit later, we haven't read it yet, but he said it was, that it was only the third hour of the day. Anybody remember what the third hour of the day, what time of day that is for us? The third hour of the day for, for, for us would be 9 o'clock in the morning. Because for them, uh, the day starts at 6 o'clock, so 9, 9 o'clock is the third hour of the day. So it was 9 o'clock in the morning, and there's many people that believe that they were in the temple for prayer, probably in the court of the women, because uh, we know that we already know that they were uh, habitually in the temple during the hours of prayer. So, and it's possible that in the temple there, one of the porticos or, or the roof colonnades on the edge of the court would have provided a good place for them to gather and to pray and to worship. And, and that would help explain the crowd that gathered after the Holy Spirit was, was poured out on that day. Now, uh, it's possible that they were in an upper room uh, in a place that was public enough in an area large enough that a crowd gathered. But whatever it was, we know that it was a place like that. And it says they were, they were in one accord. I don't know how they got that many people in one Honda, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I tried to let that one go and I just couldn't. Yes, and you were, everybody, everybody, you were right on top of it. No, they, they, and we, we talked a, bit, a little bit last week about, you know, the people, many of the people that were there, they had many disagreements in the past, and there was jealousy, and there was uh, this competition about who was going to be the greatest, and all that is gone now because of the resurrection of Jesus, and he's given them a purpose, and they're there, and they're one, in one accord. There's unity of mind, and unity of purpose, and, and there's uh, unity of prayer, and all of that preceded the move of the Spirit. And I think that's important for us to understand. You know, they didn't just go and sit around and say, well, Jesus said it would come, so let's just sit here and do nothing. They were continually praying and seeking the face of God and saying, Lord, we're doing what Jesus said. We're waiting in, uh, for the gift, uh, the promise of the Father. We're waiting for the gift that he said was coming. We're waiting and we're going to seek your face until it comes. And that's a lesson for us because, listen, if we want to see a move of the Spirit in our lives, if we want to see a move of the Spirit in our church, if we want to see a move of the Spirit in this community, then we have got to be of one mind, we've got to be of one purpose, and we've got to be united in prayer if we want to see that move of the Holy Spirit come. So let's, let's look at this. The, they're there in one accord. See, you'll never be able to hear that phrase. You're never going to be able to hear that phrase the same way. They're there in unity. <laughs> and, and, and what happened? I want, I, want to, I want you to just picture in your mind, I want you to 
experience as much as you can the sights and the sounds of the day of Pentecost. Suddenly, surprisingly, without warning, a sound came from heaven like the blowing of a violent wind, like the sound of a tornado. Has anybody here ever heard a tornado? I, I've never actually heard one, but people say it sounds like a freight train rolling down the tracks. Imagine you being in a house. Imagine if you were one of the 120 and you're sitting there and you're praying and you're seeking and you're waiting on the promise of the Father and all of a sudden you hear a tornado filling the house. Now, it was not an actual wind. It wasn't, you know, that suddenly things were blowing around the house. It was the sound like a mighty wind. And so the sound begins to fill the house and overwhelm them. And, and you know, the, the Greek word uh, and the Hebrew word both for spirit can mean, can mean wind. It can be also, also translated breath. That's why it's, it's very interesting, especially in the Old Testament with with Hebrew, like when you go to the creation story, when it talks about that he breathed life into him, breath, that's also the same word for spirit. It's that the spirit brings life. There's so many things there that it can be. But, but as they hear this sound and they say, that sounds like a, this massive, violent wind. And the sound of wind would remind them of, of many powerful Old Testament divine manifestations. Like when, when God spoke to Joe. J, let me get it right. God spoke to Job uh, in Job 38.1. says, the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. And, and there was a mighty wind when the, when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. Exodus 14.21, then Moses raised his hand over the sea and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. And, and they would hear this and think of that moment, that wind, when God showed up. And wind was a symbol of the moving of Spirit of God in, in the valley of, the, of dry bones. When Ezekiel, I love this, the story of Ezekiel in the valley of dry bones. When he walks in and there's this, these bones of this mass, massive army laying there. And they're just bleached in the sun. And, and, I, and I'm gonna go, I can't preach on it tonight. But, but uh, where he, the, the, the Lord asked him, he said, Son, he said, can these bones live? I, I love his answer. His <laughs> He didn't just say no. He said, only you know that. <laughs> That's beyond my knowledge. But this is what he said in verses 9 and 10 of Ezekiel 37. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Remember, breath, wind, spirit, all the same word. Prophesy, son of, God, uh, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come breath from the four winds and breathe into, the, into these slain that they may live so I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. And then he interprets this in verse 14 when he says, in the same way, he says, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. They know, they know from the sound of this, from their, they know the Old Testament. And they hear this wind blowing. These are the things that can come to their mind. Jesus himself even referred to the wind in speaking of the Spirit when he was talking to Nicodemus. In John 3, 8, he said, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The sound of the wind indicated to those present that God was about to manifest himself in, and his Spirit in a special way. So that was the sound. But then just as suddenly... What seemed to be tongues of fire appeared and separated. That, that, that is something that looked like a ball of, uh, or a mass of flames appeared over the whole group. And it showed up there in the room. So, so imagine this, you get the sound that sounds like a freight train, the winds, sound of a wind blowing through, and now this ball of fire, what it looks like. Now it wasn't really fire, it, it just, that's how they could describe it, but it looked like that, and, and it came down, and, and, that, that, and it began to separate into single tongues as a flame as it came out, and then began to rest upon every one of those that were in the room, both men and women. And as I said, there was, of course, no actual fire. No one was burned. But, but we also know from the Old Testament that fire and light were common symbols of the divine presence. One of the most famous, Moses in the burning bush. Uh, it says in Exodus 3, there, 
There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was, was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from the, within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here am I. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are you're standing is holy ground. And as he stood there, the fire was a symbol of the presence of God. Then, then you have the Lord's appearance in fire on Mount Sinai. We mentioned Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. But, but after the people of Israel accepted the covenant that God had offered to them, it says in Exodus 19:18 that Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from, from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. Can you imagine that sight? The majesty, the glory of that moment. In fact, you know, the, 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 this was going on and at one point in time, I don't know if you realize this, but scripture tells us God wanted all of the Israelites to come on, up on the mountain with him. He invited them all, but the people of Israel said, uh, Moses, how about you go? And God said, all right, just send Moses. Then you have the fire of the Lord that burned up Elijah's sacrifice. 1 Kings 18, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood of the, and, and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. They know these things. And now fire was also connected with the old, in the Old Testament prophecy with prophecies about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, that are found in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel and Zechariah. And then John the Baptist himself said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So this ball of fire, is, and that's the best way that we can describe it, because it wasn't, you know, as I said, it wasn't a real fire. But this ball of fire that was, Obvious to the people that were there, knowing the Old Testament, obvious that, that the wind and the fire meant God is in this place. He's about to do something. And it split into these flames and it says it came to rest on each one of them, which means that it, you know, that it implies a certain amount of time was involved. It wasn't like a lightning strike that went and it was gone. But it's important to notice this. These signs actually preceded the Pentecostal baptism or the gift of the Spirit. These things were not the actual promise. These things were not the gift of the Spirit. They were not part of it, nor were they repeated on any other occasions when the Spirit was outpoured. This was the symbol that God says, this is it. This is the, the moment where they heard the sound and they saw the fire and they said, you know, because I can't imagine, I can imagine that some of them might have been thinking to themselves when Jesus said, go and wait for the promise of the Father. Go tarry in Jerusalem. You'll receive the gift of the Spirit uh, and, and uh, you'll receive power. I can imagine some of them may have had these conversations, you know. Hey, Peter, how do you suppose we'll know when we get it? What's it going to look like? I mean, how, how are we going to know when the gift shows up? How are we, we going to know for sure? Well, God left no doubt. The sound of the wind, the, 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 the tongues of fire resting upon them. They're watching this, and before the Spirit actually is poured out on them, right before, instantly before, they know this is it. And it, we're told that all of them were filled, and all began to speak in other tongues. Now, let me ask you this. Why is it significant that we're told all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Why do you think that's significant? Okay, yeah, three answers and I didn't get you any of them. <laughs> the, okay. Everyone knew? Okay, that, and that was where I was wanting to go with it. It shows us uh, because there are some that will say the baptism of the Holy Spirit was just for the apostles. That's not true, because even on the day of Pentecost, it wasn't just the, the, the 12, but it was everybody. 
It was everybody in that room. Every one of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And every one of them began to speak in other tongues. And I think that's significant as well uh, that it says that they began to speak in other tongues. Because what did it mean when, G- when uh, Luke started the, the, uh, the, gospel of, uh, the book of Acts when he said, this is uh, to tell you all that Jesus began to do. What did that mean? That meant that he was not done, right? And now it says they began to speak in other tongues. That he's saying, listen, this is not just a one-time thing. This is something that begins here, and it just is going to continue to carry on. And, and the promise of God, you know, this, this gift of the Spirit came upon all of them, and they all began to speak. And it tells us that this is for all believers. This promise is for you. For everybody in this room, it's not just a certain select few that that God wants to fill with the Spirit. He wants to baptize in the Holy Spirit. He wants to do it for you. And He wants to do it in in a way that it's going to be an ongoing thing that happens in your life. But, But the filling, I want to say this, precedes the speaking. They were filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. They were filled with the Spirit and began to speak. In other words, the speaking, in a way, was more of a response to what God was doing. It was more of a sign about what God had had done. They, They spoke in other tongues, it says, as the Spirit enabled them. Now listen, it was not gibberish. It wasn't just some made-up, uh, 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 you know, words or utterances or anything like that. It wasn't that. We know that because, in fact, uh, we'll see as we when, we, when we, next week we get into it, we'll see that as they spoke, that those were the, that were gathered there actually heard uh, uh, that they, were, they realized that they were, they were speaking in their native languages and they could understand everything they said. And, and they, were, they were amazed that these uneducated Galileans could speak uh, fluently and perfectly in their own languages. So we know that, that the Spirit of God gave them that new supernatural ability. I'm going to talk a little bit uh, next week about some times when God still does that sort of thing. But we, excuse me. But we also know from Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 that there's, that there's another type, as a heavenly language uh, that, that the Bible says that no man understands, that, that only God, the Spirit himself, knows and understands. And so they're both the same thing in essence, but, but when the Holy Spirit chooses to, for the right reason, for a specific situation, instead of, instead of and I've even, I think I even told a story about Jack Hayford, about how he began to speak in an ancient uh, Kiowan language. There are times when the Holy Spirit can, can cause a person who has no knowledge of another language to speak in that language under the anointing of the Holy Spirit for a specific purpose. And that's what he did on the day of Pentecost. But it's still the same in essence in that they are speaking in a language that they have no right, no ability, no knowledge of how to speak in. So it wasn't gibberish. It was, it was a supernatural enabling that came from the Holy Spirit. But I also want you to see this. When we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I've seen a lot of people get really hung up when they're seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit because they didn't understand this part of it. The people in that room used their own tongues to speak. They exercised their own muscle that was in their tongue. They, They did that, but the words did not come from their own minds or their own thinking. Okay? The Spirit gave them what to speak, and they expressed it boldly, loudly, and with obvious anointing and with power. Uh, They retained their senses, and they spoke in willing cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Now, I say that because I have known people seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and, and I've had people come to me, and they were so frustrated because... They hadn't received the gift that they were longing for and that they're praying for. And we're not going to get into different reasons why there might be a delay on some of those things tonight. But, but I come, to, you know, many of them I'd find out that they were expecting God to just come over, come in and grab their tongue and start doing it. But you have to speak. 
It's you speaking, but the Spirit of God giving you what to say in the moment. And it's, it's a step of faith when the Holy Spirit gives you that and you begin to speak it out. He doesn't just, you know, you don't become a puppet when, he, when the Holy Spirit begins to move. When you begin to speak in tongues, you, you don't completely lose control. You're aware of what's going on. You, you're, you're not like in a trance. You know, there, there are other... Um, um, pagan religions throughout history uh, that will speak quote-unquote in other tongues but they go into this strange trance and and they're just out there somewhere that's not way, the way it is I heard a, a teacher one time say this and I, I thought it was so powerful he said you know when the Holy Spirit comes he comes through you as you in other words, he doesn't change your personality. He doesn't, he's not going to make you, you know, he's not going to make Raquel uh, become and act like Linda. He's not going to make Linda become and act like, like Josh. He's not going to make us, he's, he made us who we are. And so when the Holy Spirit begins to speak through us, he, he doesn't just, you know, take over and change your personality. He made you who you are. But you have to speak out to be able to, to step into that. There's a step of faith in receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's just like, okay, gift. I'll give you an example. The gift of salvation is a gift, right? You don't do anything to receive it. You can't make it happen, right? That's what a gift is. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is the gift of the Father. It's a gift that He wants to give to you. So that means there's nothing you can do to make it happen. Right? Yeah, it's all you do in both situations is receive by faith. That's all you can do. It's, it's, you can't make it happen. You know, that's why, you know, we, and we've gotten it so weird sometimes. Maybe you've been there. I've been there growing up in a Pentecostal church where you're down at the altar and you got one person on one side they're telling you, just let it go, brother. Just let it go. And then you got somebody on the other side saying, hang on, brother. Hang on. And you're like, I don't know what to do. Or, I mean, I've even seen things, I, I, I believe, frankly, are, are just abuses. I've seen people, you know, uh, ministers even, where, they, where they're praying with somebody to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they'll give them the, uh, a sim, syllable or something and say, just repeat this over and over and over again. No, the Lord doesn't need your help to do that kind of thing. There wasn't anybody doing that. And, and so it's a step of faith to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to receive this gift. I know you want to give to me. And he, the Spirit comes and, and, and these words and these syllables begin to form in your mind. And there's a step of faith of saying, I believe that if I ask God to give me the Holy Spirit, that he's not going to give me something different. And he's not going to allow the enemy to come in and give me something that's counterfeit. He's going to do it. So I'm going to believe that this is him. And I step out in faith to begin to speak. And you open the door to what he wants to do. Anyway, this gift, the gift of speaking in tongues, was the one sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that was consistently repeated. Now, in the Assemblies of God, we talk about the initial physical evidence of, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as being the, the gift of speaking in tongues. And I want to I take you through the book of Acts so you'll understand why we've come to that conclusion, why we believe that. Number one, we just, we just saw there in, on the day of Pentecost, they all spoke in tongues at the day of Pentecost. Then you go to Acts chapter 10, there's a story of the house of Cornelius. And Peter goes there and he preaches to Cornelius. And this is, this is sort of the Gentile Pentecost in a sense. It says this, while Peter was still speaking these words, he's preaching to them, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. Listen to these next words. How did they know it had happened? For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So Peter, in this moment when the Holy Spirit comes and he begins to move in Cornelius' house, the, he saw, said... This is how we know that they've received the same gift of the Spirit as we have as Jews. It's because they're speaking in other tongues. All right? Let's move on to chapter 19. And this is a situation where 
there's some Ephesian disciples, some believers that are in the city of Ephesus, and, uh, and Paul, uh, Paul was speaking to them. And listen to what he says. Uh, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. All right, so they just got saved. When Paul placed his hand on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now, prophecy is a gift of the Spirit. However, that's not one that shows up every time. So there are times when the other gifts may show up when someone is baptized in the Holy Spirit. But so far, every time that it has happened, the one common denominator has been that they spoke in tongues. So let's go, let's go back to Acts chapter 8. Um, this is uh, a great revival in Samaria. And Philip is there and he's leading this revival. And, uh, and it says in Acts chapter 8 verses 14 and 18, through 18. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, now you, you see in, F, in P, Paul's conversation in Ephesus and now when they arrive here with these new believers... They, they, they're not denying that they're believers, they're not denying that they're Christian, but they are recognizing the fact that there is something else that God wants to do in their lives that comes after salvation, or at least concurrent with salvation, because they're both times they're asking them, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? So that he's going there to pray that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of, hand, of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Now, I stop there because we're not told in this case specifically what happened, but we do know that it was a physical, uh, uh, visual sign that took place that when the, when the apostles laid hands on them and prayed and they received the Holy Spirit, something happened that Simon could see and he said, I want that power and he offered Peter money. That's a whole story that we'll get to at another time. So we don't know, that time is not specifically mentioned tongues. However, we do know from previous times that every time there was tongues. So we, we believe that ties in with that. And then, and then you look at the Apostle Paul. We're not told the details of Paul's baptism of the Holy Spirit when it, when it first happened. But we do know that he spoke in tongues because he said in 1 Corinthians 14 and 18, he said, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So the only common denominator, anytime there is a specific sign present, the only common one is speaking in tongues. And that's why we have come to the conclusion that we believe that's the initial physical evidence of, of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to ask you another question. Why, out of all the things that God could choose, all the signs that could be, why do you think God chose speaking in tongues as the initial physical evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit? Okay. That's good. What else? That's good. That's good. What else? Well, no. <laughs> I haven't been able to anyway. I have, listen, I'm going to give you Daveology, okay? This is, this is what I believe. If, if you don't agree with me, that's okay. I, I've uh, that's all right. Here's what I think. We know from James, he said, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark, 
The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed of mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Why did God choose speaking in tongues as the initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It's because we can't control our tongues. And when we reach a place where we're able to surrender ourselves to God to such a point that He is able to control and, and be able to use our tongue in a different way that brings glory to Him, that He brings control over the most uncontrollable, uncontrollable part of our body, and we at that place have reached a new place of surrender. I think he chose it because he knows that's the one part of the body, as, as James says, that we can't, we can't control. Has anybody here ever said something you wish you hadn't said? Yeah. You know, there have been a very, very few times in my life that I've regretted not saying something. A few times. But there have been more times than I can count that I wish I had just kept my mouth shut. You ever, I mean, you ever have that moment where you say something, and as soon as you say it, you're like, oh, why did I say that? You know, the words come out, and you're like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> We've all been there. It's, it's the most unruly part of the body. And when we, when, we, when we learn to surrender to God in such a way and trust Him in such a way, that we can yield our tongue to Him and begin to speak a heavenly language. Listen, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, it's not a higher level of Christianity. You're not a better Christian than a Baptist that's not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's not a higher level. It, it is a higher level of surrender. There's a big difference, you know. See, here's the thing. When you get saved... The Holy Spirit does take up residence in you. You have the Holy Spirit when you get saved. You can't be saved without the, without the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. But, but I want you to, to get this in your mind. When you get saved, you have the Holy Spirit. But when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has you. I, I want you to picture. I actually meant to get this, and I completely forgot to do it because I had to run home and get my girls uh, before church, and so I forgot to get it. But I'm, I'm meant to have a pitcher of water and a cup up here. So you'll have to use your imagination, okay? If I had an empty cup and I had a pitcher of water, I can take that pitcher of water and I can pour that cup full, completely full of water. And, and it, is, it, is, it is filled, it has water in it. That's like you when you get saved. You have the presence of God living in you. The Holy Spirit dwells in your, in your life. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, much like water baptism, if I take that glass that's been filled with water and I drop it inside the pitcher, the glass is still filled with water. But more than that, the glass is surrounded and, and uh, embraced and completely immersed in the water. See, you have the Holy presence of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit when you get saved. But when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, you are surrendering yourself in such a way that now instead of just having him in you, that you live and move and breathe in him and he is, a, he is control of your life, you are submerged in him. That's why baptism, that's what it means to be submerged. And understanding this, here's the thing. Because we've talked a lot tonight about, about tongues and the gift of tongues as a sign that, that we have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to understand this. We have, we have as same as God, it's a very important to us. We teach that. Uh, but, but sometimes we teach it to a degree uh, about the initial physical evidence that we end up setting up a scenario where we, where we make it difficult for people because... What happens is we hear it and we hear this is the initial physical, physical evidence of baptism, let me get it out, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so somebody goes to the altar and says, I want the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So what do they begin to seek? 
They begin to seek the tongues instead of seeking the spirit. And, and, and this is why it's important because I believe with all my heart the initial physical evidence is speaking in tongues. And I believe that is important. But you know, the, the other side of it is that there have been so many people that have equated the two that they, they were at an altar and they spoke in tongues. And as soon as they spoke in tongues, they got up and said, that's it, I'm done. I got it. And they miss out on the greater that God has. And they, they miss out on that because that initial physical evidence is important. But you know what? It's not nearly as important as the ongoing evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The ongoing evidence is what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will what? Witness. You will not just witness, you will be my witness. So it's a power to be, not just a power to do witnessing, but a power to be. So you, you will uh, be involved in witnessing and telling people about Christ, but your witness goes well beyond just the things that you say to people, doesn't it? See, this is why the baptism of the Holy Spirit helps us grow in holiness. Because as I grow in holiness, that strengthens my weakness, my, my witness. Not strengthens my weakness. It strengthens my witness, right? Because, listen, if I'm not living a holy life, if I'm, if I'm living in a way that, uh, that, that sows to the flesh and pleases the flesh and the world sees that, then when I say, hey, I want to tell you about Jesus and what he can do, they're going to look at my, my life and say, well, obviously he can't do too much because you say you're saved, but you live the same way as the rest of us. And that's why the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it will help us grow in holiness and, but it's not just about the holiness, it's that that strengthens the witness. So it's about being, it's about power to be who God called you to be. Power to be a, a man or a woman of God. Power to be holy so that when you witness with your mouth that it carries much greater power and you can walk under the anointing of the Spirit of God so that the words that you say carry power that go well beyond the, your ability to speak words. Because they're spoken under the anointing and leadership of the Holy Spirit. You see, a change takes place in our lives when we're baptized in the Holy Spirit. And, and one of the greatest changes is that we become powerful and effective witnesses. So if somebody comes up and they say, I, I've baptized in the Holy Spirit, I spoke in tongues. That's wonderful. However, I want to know... Is it active in your life beyond that moment of speaking in tongues to where you are letting the Holy Spirit empower you and use you so that you are a witness to those that are around you? Because that's what it's about. It's not about a great feeling. It's not a great emotional event. Sometimes it's, can I tell you this? Sometimes the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a very emotional event for somebody. But I've also seen people, I've seen people, uh, in fact, my wife is one, that uh, we were, uh, when we were dating, uh, we were sitting in, the, in a car in the driveway outside of her house, and I was talking to her about the Holy Spirit and, and just explaining it to her. And, and just in, her, in, her, in simple childlike faith, she received it, and she began to speak in tongues. And it was not this great emotional moment, this loud moment, because she's, my wife's not a loud person. But it was real, and it changed their life. So, you know, it's not about you got to, it's got to look like that, like the person over there who is filled with the Spirit, or it's got to look like this person. Listen, it's just about receiving, and it's not about it. It's great. I, listen, I'm an emotional person. I love the emotional moments. But the Lord taught me a long time ago, I can't live on the emotional moments, and I can't seek after the emotional moments because then the emotion becomes my God and I'm seeking after them instead of seeking after him. But this is a powerful thing. And when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, and listen, I encourage you, if, you have been, if you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, I, 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 I just beg of you, you need to take time and pray in the Spirit every day. Every chance you get. 
pray in your, in your prayer language? Well, one, because we know the Bible says that when we speak in tongues that we edify ourselves, we build ourselves up, we, we get stronger. But by doing that, we're allowing the Holy Spirit to impart power into our lives daily. See, because they were, they were filled on the day of Pentecost, weren't they? But then later on, we're going to see at different times when, when a great need arose or persecution arose or something else happened, it says they were, they were ready to speak. And it says, for example, it'll say, and Peter filled with the Spirit. And that says, that was the, the verb there is used. It means that he was in that moment filled, that he got a special anointing for that moment. And, and so it's not just that you receive it one time and you walk away, but it's this constant walk with God, this constant refilling, you know, not in the sense that you leak, <laughs> You know, I don't think you leak, but as I reminds me, there was a guy, I remember a pastor I worked with years and years ago, he, he told me a story about this one fellow that, and you've all known these, these type of people, they would, they, he, he'd come to church and he'd, he'd get saved and he'd come for the altar, to the altar and he'd weep and he'd cry and he'd, be, he'd be, uh, uh, repent and he'd be filled with the Spirit and he'd be okay for a little while. And then a few weeks later, he'd start falling away. And next thing you know, he was gone. And then he'd come back again later and go through the whole thing again. And after a few times of this cycle going over and over again, they were, they were at the altar praying with this guy. And, and, uh, and these ladies were all around him praying, Lord, fill him. Lord, fill him. And he said, I have to confess. I was standing there saying, Lord, don't fill him. He leaks. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about keeping it fresh and every day. Listen, we need power from the Lord, from the Spirit for every day. What you received yesterday is not enough for today. And what you have received from Him today is not going to be enough for tomorrow. It's sort of like the manna that God sent from heaven uh, for the Israelites. They, only, they can only take enough for that day. And if they tried to take any more than that and save any, it would go bad. It was really nasty stuff. Turned into this worms and all really nasty stuff. But listen, you can't live on yesterday's move of God. You can't live on yesterday's time with God or time in prayer. You can't live on yesterday's move of the Spirit in your life. Every day you need to be pressing into Him and praying and, and speaking in tongues, not for the sake of speaking in tongues, but so that you can draw near to him and you can pray to him because when you pray that way, you don't even know what you're saying, but the spirit knows what you need every day. And this is the key to being used by God. Surrendering every day. Coming to him every day. Because that's how, that's how I, you know, for me to speak in tongues every day, it means every day I've got to surrender again. So, Lord, here I am. I'm, I need more of you. I need to draw, draw in deeper. I need to know you more. I surrender myself to you again. And the key to being used by God is not becoming more. It's becoming less. Like John the Baptist. One of my favorite things that John the Baptist ever said when his disciples came to him and said, John, a lot of your disciples are going over to this Jesus guy. What are you going to do? John said, he must increase. I must decrease. Boy, if that is not summing up what it means to live for Jesus and to grow in him. And when we do this, we find the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We find power through surrender, the upside-down kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that tonight, Lord God, in the name of Jesus, that you...